Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Awful issues. I mean, we're very blessed. Uh, it's a beautiful state with a lot of good weather, but once we get hammered by fires, it's just devastating. Uh, it's interesting. You know, actually, I learned a lot from the fire 2017, and it's something that has impacted me a lot, a lot today in the winemaking. Is uh, 2017, I had some friends, you know, during the fires that were evacuated. I was working at Maryville Vineyards in St. Helena, and I was not, uh, uh, was not evacuated. But we were working every day, keeping in mind that it, there could be a power outage, that we could be evacuated, that some of our employees uh, were evacuated. So we worked with a, a reduced uh, crew staff and uh, reduced hours compared to what we normally do during harvest. And uh, so minimal work in a few words. And talking with a few other winemaker friends, uh, we were like, uh, you know, they were evacuated, came back to the winery five days later, their tanks were fermenting, and they taste the tank after five days without touching the wines. The wine is delicious. And, uh, and the whole, uh, you know, the whole spiel was, well, turns out the wine doesn't need us to make itself. And that's something that uh, always resonated somewhere in the back of my mind. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to start doing minimal work on some tanks. And I've done minimal work and it was working really well. So I started to establish a little protocol that was, we barely touch the tank. You know, we do one little wet the cap pump over a day and that's about it. That buys us more time to extract in a more gentle manner versus doing a lot of pump overs versus, you know, just moving stuff around too much. And let's see what happens. And there's always that joke that some of the best wines in France, such as Chateau Bonneau, are kind of done that way. The guy picks the fruit, puts it in a tank, closes the lid, goes hunting, comes back two weeks later, press the wine, and boom, it's, it's wonderful. And so I kind of tried that, and, and I love the wines, the finesse. The, the wines were much more polished. They were fairly well extracted too because I measured everything. I measured all the phenolics. I'm a, a, an analysis freak. And uh, I, I looked into that and the wines were strong. And, uh, and it turns out that, you know, buys you also more time to make the wine because you're not extracting it actively you're not, your risk of over extracting diminishes quite a bit. And so you're making wines that are, I think, more precise because you have more time to make them. They've got more layers and they've got a very interesting story to tell, especially if you work with vineyards that tend to be tannic on their own. So, so I learned from that, learned a lot, and that still in, in, inspires me today. You know, I think we, to some extent, winemakers are their own worst enemies. Um, I, I've heard that sentiment in different iteration over the years, just because a lot of you guys is so well-informed, so talented, so practiced. And all that knowledge sometimes can be a burden only because there's so many choices and the temptation is so great to implement it because you know it. 
the more you do, the better you feel, right? Yeah. And, and then that transpires a lot, you know, think about it that way into different, into different places, you know, think about music. If you have more notes, is the song better? Not necessarily. If you yeah. go faster, is the song better? Not necessarily. If you put more ingredients into your food, is the final dish better? I don't think so. So not, not, not all the time. So we have to think about it, I think, in a, in a different way. But in winemaking, the more you do, the more you, the more time in tank you stay, the more pump-overs, the more things, you know, the, the kind of better you look oftentimes. But oftentimes, it's only in your head. And so I think it is good sometimes to take a little bit of distance with things and, and reevaluate if, if it works or not. And uh, over the years, there's one thing I love. It, it's, it's cooking, for sure, and uh, eating food. And, uh, and I start to treat wine more and more like food in the sense that while I'm making it, I stop when I think it's really good. And, you know, if you're baking a pie or if you're baking anything or if you're making a stew, when it starts to taste really good or cooking a steak, you're like, I think I've got it. You don't need to go further, right? Uh -huh. So it's kind of an approach that, that I've taken with wine making. You know, I see I tasted the day before. I see it's tasting today. And it's right. It's right. You know, less is more, of course. I think we'll strive for that. But at the same time, as humans, we also like to exert control. It makes us feel more secure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's interesting that restraint that you practice and that sensibility, really, um, I think is, is very, very instructive. And I think there's life lesson there, not just in wine, but how you conduct yourself. I think the more you kind of humble yourself and let go, the more likely you are to achieve, you know, a more well-rounded, balanced success than if you try to tweak it incessantly, kind of like a nervous chef. <laughs> it's true for relationships as well. So thank you for that bit of wisdom. Um, one of the um, fundamental professional relationships and personal probably for you is Philippe Malka. You referenced Maryvale. I understand that's where you guys met, right? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, we met a few years before Maryvale, um, or right about right before I started Maryvale. I was uh, we kind of we kind of played around the idea of working together, maybe uh, uh, joining his team for Harvest, and uh, and Maryvale came along the way for me, and I decided to get on board with them. But you know, being two French guy in a small town. Uh, we both have, I think, uh, a lot of common interests in surfing and good wine and good company. So we kept in touch. And uh, when we were looking for a new consultant for Maryvale, you know, his name came up and he's such a fun guy. He's such a pleasure to work with. And, uh, and uh, he was able to, to achieve great stuff with Maryvale with us. And, uh, and it's, been, it's, been, it's been great. So we worked together. Uh, we had fun together while working, which is even better. And I learned a lot from him also. Uh, he's very relentless. He's another great blender. He's relentless on the blending. He's, he's very sensitive to into the wine making you know when he makes wine he always thinks about the balance of the wine in a physio, uh, 
philosophical way, yeah. not uh, not analytical, sensitive as well, and, uh, and that inspires me a lot when I see that. So we kind of kind of works kind of works well together. And when I met Roger, um, the owner of Crown Point, and I decided to I was interested about Crown Point and wanted to come on board. I asked him what he thought. He was very excited about the project. You know, we could only say good things. And uh, I hope he said good things about me to Roger as well. And, you know, here I am today. And yeah, still work, we still work together. Um, so so it's, it's awesome. He's coming, he's coming here next week. Um, and we'll have some fun blending, uh, looking into the 2019 wines for the, for the second time and uh, see, see what we got up there. Well, it sounds like a very productive and fun friendship. I certainly have heard so many good things about Philippe over the years. And it's hard to find a bad thing to say about Philippe. He literally achieved the impossible. Everybody likes him. Um, I find yeah, it... Sorry? Such a great guy yeah. at, the, at the same time. You know, very, you know, one of the best winemakers in the world out there. But at the same time, very humble, very down to earth very you know very authentic guy and that's that's great you know I, I wish there was more like him oh i i would totally vote for cloning philippe and michelle and a few others that i've been privileged philippe, to they're ready philippe, they're <laughs> ready we're coming for you yes we're gonna graft you somewhere that's right uh, we're all endangered by ai to some degree or the other so who knows um I think it's interesting that you highlighted the sensitivity quality when you spoke of blending and when you spoke of Michel and his relationship with the myriad of wines that he touches <clears throat> over the course of the year. And of course, Philippe has, <clears throat> I don't know, several dozen clients. Um, so he's engaged in a lot of projects. So that sensitivity piece, I'm quite curious about, yeah. is the relational part really what the wine is telling you and picking up on those cues and then producing something that's in harmony with what you understood that message to be. What, what is it like? Describe it to me. Um, well, first of all, you have to understand a little bit the sites and because that's going to help you a lot down the road about understanding the wines or, or I must say understanding the sites and what kind of wines it gives you. Um, because oftentimes the message that the wine is giving you is a little bit hidden. Um, to give you an idea, like you oftentimes wine, you oftentimes find wines that seem to be tannic and thin at the same time. If you have a little bit of history and distance with the area, with the winery, you may understand that in six months, or after bottling, those wines may change and evolve towards something, you know, slightly different. They may be filling in, and then that stuff that you was that you were missing, you're finally getting, you know, that mint palate, um, that that tension that that wasn't there, or that maybe was there, but then you lose it because of X, Y, and Z. So I think understanding and having some history with the wines, with the site, is always uh, always important. Having history with wines in general will always help you out. So that's, you know, that, that helps a lot when you understand, hey, that area gives you those types of wines and, um, 
and try to work that way. You know, if, if an area gives you pretty light wines, well, embrace that and make them pretty and beautiful for what they are. If you try to force it into making it a big wine, it will not necessarily work. You know, I think a lot of people want to achieve 100 points, for example, and there's a lot of different types of 100 points. It doesn't have to be about the biggest uh, uh, boulder, you know, type of cabernets. There, there's other ways to to achieve 100 points too. So I think Philippe understands that really well, and he understands also what the owner wants too, and the vision of each uh, of his clients. And I think that's that that's really good when everybody's on the same page and wants to do the same thing. You know, it, it works really well. There's not only, you know, I worked with him in Napa a lot on hillside vineyards and hillside vineyards are a little different than, than Valley Floor. You know, Valley Floor have a natural flesh, have a natural roundness to them. And uh, hillside vineyards are a whole different animal. They got the tension, they've got the, uh, they've got the, the grip, you know, they've got the, the power sometimes. So taking a step back and trying to make of wine that resembles the place where it's coming from and those characteristics that's that's really interesting here in santa barbara we work with vineyards that with a vineyard our vineyard our estate vineyard is on hillside and uh some of it is really steep and very rocky and the wines you get from that totally reflects this now the more rocks you have the more the what we call the hillside uh, character shows up. You get those. You get those very present tannins. You get that tension. You get wines that wines that are a little bit more Barolo-like, and uh, and you know they 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 taste they taste like rocks, um, and and that is very interesting. So how do we polish those rocks, and how do we make them a little bit more user friendly without completely losing the personality of the wine? And actually, we're, we're, we're trying to emphasize the, that personality, but make it a little bit more, more user-friendly, uh, just like me in the end. You know, I think, <laughs> I think my character is pretty strong. I'm just trying to make it a little bit more user-friendly uh, along the way. So, um, so he's, been, he's been of tremendous help for this, for sure. Now you're describing a really interesting arc so to speak, like in every storyline, there's an arc, right? And it begins in a winemaking sense, very much in the vineyard. And if we were to go with that parallel, then winemaker becomes an interpreter of the voice of the oh. land. We are a, uh, we are nothing more but a, um, um, uh, what was the what's the word for it um translator interpreter uh i was gonna i was gonna just go um uh a maestro like maestro. The, the orchestra yeah. Yeah. conductor thank you sorry about that okay. the, the, the orchestra is playing the our team is playing the notes the thing and and we work together and and, and the, the for me it's already in the grapes you know what i mean if the score is not good it's hard to play good music if the score is good, you can play bad music too, but the potential is already there. So those grapes that we're harvesting, when we're harvesting them, that's the score. It's in there. How we play it, it's up to us, but 
but you know you cannot you cannot make a, a, a sad piece of Chopin or Nocturne sound happy. You know, it's just not there. And you cannot make a big wine out of certain places in the world and vice versa. And you can, it's hard to make a light wine with some areas, you know, if you're, if you're, so Nebbiolo from Barolo will, will always have some, some tension, uh, hopefully, you know, <laughs> in the good, good case, you know, it's hard to take that away from the wine. And, uh, and we're just here, we're, we're, we are definitely uh, conductors like we we and and that's also a very humbling thing because we know that without good grapes there's nothing we can do you know so the prize almost goes back to mother nature um, we're, we are just uh, we're just here to kind of deliver it and uh, and respect that too at the same time you know I think if, if you have a a bad year, you can have a beautiful vineyard, Romani Conti, and then suddenly you've got hail or, or just rain the whole time. It's, it's gonna be tough to make to make world-class level wines and, and despite um, however you know how good you are, and you, you will you will definitely fight a, a pill battle there. Well, I think you put it very well. Mother Nature is always in control and it's obviously keeping everyone in the uh, business of viticulture quite humble, but it's also such an energizing, beautiful thing because you never know what to expect and it will test you. Some years it will keep you on your toes, other years it will be very generous. Um, and just to kind of harnessing all this energy and producing something that winds up on consumer stable for their enjoyment and bringing a piece of this um, really such a, intellectually stimulating and emotional journey that went into the wine into somebody's hands, I think has to be really gratifying. Um, really need to dive into your current place of employment. Jenna, you're very happy to be there. Um, and I'm happy for you. I miss Santa Barbara County a lot. So Crown Point Vineyards, I've discovered your wine um, of all places in Napa Valley during a premiere week, which is a very exciting week in the Valley. Um, there's a van that I look forward to on the annual basis, and I certainly hope it keeps coming back given the current circumstances. It's in February, and um, Atelier Melka is a big highlight, which is a showcase of all Philippe Melka's clients. We talked about him being your mentor and friend and all the synergy you guys have. Um, so your brand was presented there. I absolutely fell in love with the wines. I needed to know more, and that's how we connected. Uh, but I was fascinated by the fact that he has a project in Santa Barbara. So I want to hear everything about it, every little detail. Don't leave anything out. Wow, very cool. Um, well, what's interesting about it, as you were saying, you had at the tasting, it, is that, you know, despite Philippe intervening into the process of this wine, I think it's an outlier in the portfolio for many reasons. First of all, it's not in Napa, but personally wise, the wine has something different to offer out there. And when you try the wines within other Napa wines, you, you realize that it has a personality of its own. 
and uh, that personality could be described with for me and and then that's something personal um it's not it's not a rule here but i find our wines to be a little softer compared to napa just as powerful but a little more uh polite i was going to say a little less tannins and they have a very specific minerality and they put that quote unquote because it's really hard to describe and identify moreover minerality into a, a wine especially a red wine but for me for the lack of a better word and for the lack of other textual um vocabulary i find there's that our wines have a somewhat mineral uh metallic to some extent in a good way in a positive way like iron flavors or finish um so and i find that in many santa barbara wines i think there's something here um it, it could be couldn't be something else than minerality Uh, it could be related to sunlight. It could be related to iodine uh, coming from the ocean. Uh, it could be many different things. But for some reason, it tastes like there's something mineral into the finish of the wine, and and that contributes to bringing, I think, a lot of a lot of texture, a lot of balance, and uh, and a lot of. Uh, Uh, fun and surprise to 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 our wines and i uh, really enjoy that so that's the that's the introduction i think let's talk about what the wine is like and then we can we can kind of once we understand that go through the project crown point is a young brand it started it's a young winery i should say more than a brand because we're, we're, we have long-term plan The vineyard was planted originally a little bit when Roger came. So the owner, the visionary behind everything we do, Roger Bauer, um, is originally from Texas um, and came to visit his mom in Orange County. And uh, over the weekend, he, he traveled to Santa Inez, to Santa Barbara and Happy Canyon and stumbled into this property. He loved it. Um, a little bit of vineyard was planted and Roger has always loved wine, uh, Napa wines and Cabernets and, uh, 10 acres, some, somewhere close to 10 acres was, uh, were planted and Roger immediately connected with that vineyard and wanted to plant the rest of the property. So currently we have 45 acres. So we went from 10 acres to 45 acres. Um, Roger being a Cabernet fan and from Texas, he, owns a, he owned a cattle ranch in Texas near um, Fort Worth. Um, he knew a little bit about agriculture. Um, he's a guy with a lot of uh, willpower, vision, And um, without knowing a whole lot about viticulture and winemaking, he just went on board with this project and it kind of, it resonated with him and wanted to go forward and establish one of the greatest vineyards in California, um, one of the greatest property here in, in Santa Barbara. So we're small, extremely committed and dedicated to, I think, you know, putting Santa Barbara on the map for Cabernet Sauvignon. 
we're in a beautiful area. Uh, it's at the eastern end of the Santa Ynez Valley. For those who know Santa Ynez Valley, it's a east to west um, valley that ends up in the ocean in, in Lompoc area. So we've got something very similar to Napa Valley. We've got cold uh, wind coming in at the end of the day. And, um, and that's why at the western tip of the valley, you plant cool, cold climate varietals such as Pinot and Chardonnay. And the eastern area where we, where we are is, is much warmer without being too warm, but it's uh, 10 degrees warmer at least. And that is a great weather for Cabernet. So it's, it's funny how mother nature varies where, wherever you go and we're able to grow within 50 miles, less than that, different varieties that, you know, in France, it would be hundreds of miles uh, just because the, the, the cool air from the ocean is present. It's so very, the climate here is extremely, extremely interesting. Uh, you know, when I was in Napa, I was fascinated by the Napa weather, but it seems like I'm, I'm able to beat that here and find uh, many, many different microclimates that, that uh, um, definitely, you know, interest me. So this is what we have here. The difference also in terms of climate is due to two mountain range. We, the valley is protected uh, from the ocean by the Santa Ynez mountain range, and it's protected from the central valley by the San Rafael mountain range. So we, we're not, even though we're 10 miles away from the ocean, um, we're not in direct uh, contact with it. So it's never, you know, too cold for us to ripen Cabernet. And it's never too hot because the, the San Rafael mountain range is protecting us from the uh, Central Valley. So we have a little, we have fewer heat waves than, uh, than Napa. And, and, and that I will, I will define maybe a little later how, how it's impacting the wines. So I think in a short, uh, in a nutshell, these are some of the main reasons why I think our wines are a little more user-friendly, a little less tannic, despite having really good power at, at the same time. I find it fascinating how, how the terroir is shaping up here in uh, the wines in uh, Happy Canyon. Um, what's also super interesting is uh, uh, no one or, or not a lot of people have spent a lot of time studying this because the area is much younger than than Bordeaux, of course. So we still we still need to understand how the terroir effect, so how the site uh, is impacting uh, the personality and the style of wines that we're making here for Cabernet. Um, so I'm I'm extremely excited to be part of this. And uh, I look forward to understanding more um, and, uh, and it's going to be a really, really fun journey. Well, it certainly sounds like it. So Happy Canyon, first of all, let's focus on the happy part. And I'm totally stealing it from Philippe. When you guys were chatting on Instagram, 
recently. That's yeah. the first thing he said, and I thought that was adorable. He said, hey, anything that comes from Happy Canyon has got to be happy wine, right? Exactly. Um, so you don't even need marketing. It's built in. Um, second of all, Happy Canyon is no stranger to experimenting that region with different varietals. That's when he had some really interesting stuff. Um, Santa Barbara County, of course, is known for Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays predominantly, and, and rightly so, perhaps. But I think it's also instructive that it's a younger EVA, and there's a lot more room there to plant different things and study them and figure out how the soil matches to the varietals. I mean, yeah. the land is not nearly as expensive as the Napa Valley, number one. Um, and there's quite a bit of talent to draw from. I mean, you have San Luis Obispo, you know, you have graduates there, um, you know, that you're sailorettes first, right? You have some labor to, to draw from. Um, also, a lot of young dynamic minds that you can engage and really study the area and truly delve into what, you know, and there's diversity galore there, but what are the best matches? Um, I'm utterly fascinated by the fact that Roger, and I haven't met him, but it sounds like a larger than life personality, dynamic, you know, with a very clear vision, willpower, and then, you know, those old leadership qualities is great. Um, the fact that he decided on Cabernet, you know, yes, it's important to have a clear idea of what you want but also would the terroir, would the land actually support your vision? And it sounds like that's a confluence that came together in this particular site. Yeah, it, it, there's definitely, uh, there was definitely an unknown. Uh, if I put myself in his shoes, I would have imagined, you know, despite my background uh, in viticulture, winemaking, and, uh, and, and just loving to understand terroir, there would still have been a large uh, part of bets into planting 50 acres of Cabernet here, you know, and the fact that he did it, believing in it without knowing much about viticulture at the time, I found it, I found it fascinating. There was a little bit of Cabernet, some Syrah was planted and some, some Rhone varietals and, and Roger, couldn't believe it. He's like, this is a place for Cabernet. And, and everything looks like it's, it's meant to be for Cabernet. You know, it looks fairly Mediterranean around us. You look at the, you look at, at the flora and you will find some, some macchia, you know, some Mediterranean bush a little bit all over. And it's, it's very pretty of those rolling hills. And, and you, could, you could clearly Imagine being in uh, in Bulgari, you know, in Marema Toscana, right there, with the ocean being being close to us. So it, it feels like a really, really good match for Cabernet. And originally, a fun story that he told me is that the the ten acres that were planted were were not on the steep slopes. They were they were mostly on the foothills and on the gentle slopes that we that we have. And when Roger looked around the property, he's like, guys, we need to plant the hillside, really, the, you know, the steeper slopes. We need to plant the poorer soils out there. And the viticulture team that he was working with told him, well, you know, the soils are very high in mineral. They're very poor. And uh, we don't think that the vines would do well there. 
And uh, <laughs> Roger doesn't really take no for an answer unless you convince him that he's wrong and you bring facts, he will keep pushing where he wants to go. And, uh, and I love that about him. So he, he didn't stop there and, and had it planted. And sure enough, you know, a few years down the road, these are actually our best vineyards today. And these are, you know, the vineyards that, that we consider being part of the, we laugh about it, you know, the 100 points project. We think that these will make the best wines and these, we hope, uh, will, will put Happy Canyon on the map of, uh, of California Cabernet. No, I found it utterly fascinating, the parallels that you drew to Maremma, for example. Um, I was very fortunate to visit that region twice, and I was blown away because when people think of Tuscany, they think of classic, you know, rolling hills, whatever. Maremma has that, but it's a lot more rugged. Um, the proximity to the ocean, of course, makes the terrain different, and it's just more expansive, and a lot of diverse wines. It's for the most part, very inexpensive, uh, but there's some producers that are really stepping it up. And I've tasted yeah. some extraordinary examples of red blends. And I thought, how underrated. The world is always talking about Super Tuscans. They still are for decades. And Maremma is virtually unknown. So when you were talking about this minerality that you highlighted so beautifully in the beginning of the conversation, for some reason, that's what popped into my mind. Um, mm you and I had a brief discussion on the term itself because it's used quite liberally, but I think it can take on many different meanings. And again, when you were talking about it, the ocean floors kept popping up, that iodine quality. I, say, I associate frequently minerality with salinity. They just sort of hand and glove situation. Um, okay. and, I, and I think with respect to Cabernet, the qualities that it offers it's lighter on its feet. It's, it has a more elegant presence on the palate, but it has the stamina without being weighty that's supplied by all those characteristics. And I think that's immensely exciting for you as a creator, as a winemaker, that has to be bees knees to be able to create a wine that has, you know, such refined characteristics, such complexity, but not have it be heavy handed, have that sensibility, that old world elegance. Am I getting it right? I the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson. <laughs>